morning. Wonderful to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, if you would now open with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13, as we consider together the subject of being model citizens. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Well, do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for how practical and relevant it is for the days in which we're living Teach us, Lord, what it is to apply these things that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. When we arrived at the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul began to write on the subject of practical Christianity. He explained how a Christian is to live his or her life for Jesus. And it begins by committing all that I am to Christ. And this commitment, it's not partial, it's not half-hearted, but it's total, it's complete. Paul referred to this commitment as our reasonable service. In light of all that Jesus has done for me, he gave his life so that I could have life. The least that I can do is now live my life for him. Next, we discovered that we not only have the blessing of being in a personal relationship with the living God, but we're also part of something that is bigger than ourselves. We're members of the body of Christ known as the church. We are different from one another with a diversity of gifts, but we are all connected to one another and connected to the Lord Jesus. And within this church body, The Lord has distributed gifts unto his people that both expound upon the word of God and expand the work of God. The greatest gift that we have is that of love. First and foremost, a love for the Lord, then a love for his people. And finally, a love for those who are lost within this world. But now into the 13th chapter, the emphasis and the focus changes from our functioning as part of the body to our role as Christians within society. What is the Christian's responsibility to civil authority? How are we to live in response to our political structure that we have within our country? It's important to keep in mind, first of all, the historical context in which this letter was written. The church that Paul was writing to in Rome was predominantly 
Gentile. However, there were also Jews within the congregation, and both Jew and Gentile alike were under the rule of the Roman Empire. Many of the Jews were consistently rebellious against the Roman occupation and authority. A number of Jews actually formed a group that were known as the Zealots. And the Zealots refused to pay taxes and often engaged in terrorist attacks of insurrection in attempts to overthrow the government of Rome. Many of them would even turn on their own people, taking the lives of fellow countrymen and burning their houses for paying any tribute to Rome. Yet Paul points out that respecting and abiding under civil authority is an important part of practical Christianity. The Bible says that as Christians, we are in reality a part of an entirely different kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. In writing to the Philippians, Paul said that our citizenship is in heaven. In his first epistle, Peter declared that we are sojourners and pilgrims and we're simply passing through. For the believer in Jesus, this earth is a temporary stop on the way to our home in heaven. Like Abraham, we are looking and living for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're longing for, as the writer of Hebrews says in the 11th chapter, a heavenly country. Nevertheless, that does not mean that we are exempt from abiding by the governmental authority that has been placed over us. Now, let me begin by saying that in this context, the Apostle Paul isn't addressing the subject of corruption within the government, and there was corruption within the Roman government. Nor is he commenting about obeying God rather than the government if the government goes against God's word. Rather, he is simply emphasizing that Christians, followers of Jesus, should be outstanding model citizens. Christians shouldn't be breaking the laws of the land or lying on their tax returns. We're believers. We're followers of Jesus Christ. And so he begins by exhorting the church here, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And the reason? There is no authority except from God, and God appoints the authorities that exist. He begins by exhorting his readers to be in submission to the governing authorities, and he gives the reasons why. The first reason is because authority comes from God and is appointed by God. In the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 9. As Noah and his family exited the ark, the Lord inaugurated human government when he gave unto Noah the authority of a magistrate for the carrying out of capital punishment on those who would take the life of another. This authority was for the purpose of regulating human affairs. Later on, God gave to his people the Ten Commandments. They're, they're the structure, the laws were all instituted by God. You remember when Jesus was being questioned by Pilate before his crucifixion and how he remained silent? 
fulfilling biblical prophecy. He was like a lamb led before his shears, so he opened not his mouth, the Bible says. And Pilate became rather frustrated with Jesus' lack of response. And so he expressed his political power by saying to Jesus in John chapter 19, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus replied, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus recognized that there was authority and that authority was from above. Now, we may not agree with every policy of a person in power and authority, but we are to respect that person's position. And in this country, we have been given the opportunity, the freedom to actually vote our convictions. But as a Christian, when it comes to civil authority, we are to be, as the Bible says here, subject to it. The word subject is a word that represented a logistical term which described the arrangement of military implements on a battlefield for effective warfare. And the word itself is used in what's called the present imperative, and it just simply means it's a command. It's a command calling for continual obedience. For a believer to fulfill this command, he or she must yield to the governing authority, first of all, of the Holy Spirit, who enables grace-based obedience rather than legalistic obedience. It's the Holy Spirit working in my life to yield to that authority that is over me. The Apostle Paul, in exhorting Titus in his pastoral epistle, chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey and to be ready for every good work. Peter, writing to the church that was suffering persecution in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what he said to the believers. He said, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governor's as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then Paul wrote to Timothy, and he exhorted the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Because authority comes from God and is appointed by God, we are to yield to that authority. Secondly, if you resist that authority, you will suffer the consequences. Look what it says in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. I love Philip's translation of this passage. Listen to what he says. Every Christian ought to obey the civil authorities for all legitimate authority is derived from God's authority. And the existing authority is appointed under God to oppose authority than is to oppose God, and such opposition is bound to be punished. The verb for resist here 
is used in the present tense, and it pictures one who continually and habitually resists authority and does so as a way of life. If you break the laws of the land, you will either do the time or pay the fine that comes with breaking the law. You'll suffer the consequences. You'll reap whatever it is you sow. If you are trying to secretly break the laws that you don't agree with or you don't feel they're that important to you, you may get, if I may say, busted. And you'll be held accountable. Shady business deals, questionable ethics, under the table dealing, those types of things we may try to justify in our flesh, but God will bring them to the light. Now, when it comes to submission to those who are over us, when it comes to being aware of what's going on in our society, I do believe that it is important to be aware, to be informed. I believe we ought to take a stand when it is necessary, that we ought to write letters, sign petitions, contact our congressmen, vote our convictions in order to make a difference. In fact, shame on us if we do not exercise the liberty and freedom that men and women have died to protect. Amen? Listen, I have traveled to other parts of the world where people are longing for liberty and have no access to it. But when we express those differences, we do so within the context of being upright, godly, law-abiding citizens. We should vote. We should express our beliefs. Let me also say that I do believe that there can be the tendency to exchange the purpose of the church, which, by the way, is to be advancing the kingdom of God, and we have taken on the task of trying to moralize a culture. We're trying to change the outside of society rather than changing the hearts of the individual's within the society. Friends, there is no legislation that can be lobbied for or put into law that can change the heart of a man or woman. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has that kind of power. There are even those today who are leaving the use of their pulpits which should be for the proclamation of the life-giving message of the word of God, and they are emphasizing political agendas. Rather than exegesis of the scriptures, they are rebroadcasting to the congregation the recent political problems. Listen, I know that when you come into this place, you're very well aware of the problems. And when you come in here, you don't need to hear about more problems, you need to hear about the solution. And thus, I want to present the Word of God. I want to present to you Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Sadly, there are those Christians who have exchanged their devotional times of reading and listening to God's Word for reading and listening to political commentaries. It's rather depressing. 
and not very encouraging. I'm not saying you shouldn't be informed. I'm not saying you shouldn't be aware. Please don't misunderstand. But I'm saying don't ever neglect the word of God for these other things. Listen, the answer is not in the White House. The answer is in God's house. And the answer is from heaven. That's where it comes from. And our task, it's always been, and it will always be as the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus walked the earth, when Jesus was born into this world, the government was worse than it is now. When the apostles were there in the book of Acts, and it says they turned the world upside down, what were they doing? Preaching and teaching the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The amazing thing to me is that in light of the current governmental, political situation of Paul's day, Paul wasn't organizing picket lines. Paul was not encouraging people to political activism. For one thing, if he did, they would have all been killed. Rome didn't put up with any form of insurrection. They didn't have that freedom, as it were. Although Paul did use the law to his own advantage. You remember, when he was being tried unlawfully, he said, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. And to Caesar he went. I mean, he used the law when he needed to use the law, and we should too. It's there for a purpose. But folks, listen. I'm not losing sleep over coming elections. I am not stressing over the current political system and all that the media reports. I pray for those who are in authority. I desire to be salt and light in my own community I know that God says that all power is ordained by him. I don't have to fear. God is working sovereignly behind the scenes to fulfill his ultimate will and purpose. I want to be a godly, law-abiding citizen, not a militant vigilante. That is not what God's called me to be. Now, having said all that, let me add the balance by saying that a case can be made from Scripture when there are moments in time when there is a higher law that must be obeyed, the law of God supersedes the law of man. Let me give you examples. First of all, from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 1. When Pharaoh decreed and commanded that all of the midwives drowned the newborn babies of the Jewish people, they refused. They hid the children. They protected them. They would not put them to death. They stood in the gap, listen, for the unborn. And God blessed them for it. Folks, we need to be people who stand in the gap for the unborn. Listen, amen? A voice for the voiceless. I think of the book of Daniel. When Daniel went into Babylon... And the statue was built. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded that when the music played, they must bow down. They said, we're not going to bow, king. Play on. We're not going to bow down. And they were thrown into the furnace. And God delivered them. In Daniel chapter 6, you remember that the wise men who were plotting against Daniel went to the king and they said, hey, king, we got a great idea. We were thinking about putting out a decree that no one pray to any other God except to you. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. He said, he signed the paperwork. 
But they knew that Daniel prayed three times a day. And so when Daniel heard the law that was given saying, you can't pray, what did he do? He opened up his windows, got on his knees, and prayed. Got thrown into the lion's den. But there was another law that superseded the law of the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and Rome. And that is to obey God. What about the New Testament? Think about in the book of Acts, following the healing of the lame man, there at the beautiful gate at the temple. Peter and John were taken in to stand before the Sanhedrin. And they told them, we told you not to preach in that name anymore. Remember what they said? Acts chapter 4, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Second time, Acts chapter 5, similar situation. This time put into prison for preaching. Then they were brought before the Sanhedrin, and then afterwards they were beaten. But in Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles answered their accusers, and they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And that is true. There are occasions when we choose to obey God rather than men. But folks, listen, generally speaking, and in the context of this epistle, generally speaking, what Paul is writing about here is we are called to submit to the authorities that are over us. Christians should be model citizens for others because we realize the authority structure was appointed by God. Secondly, that to disobey authorities, to resist them, is to suffer the consequences. But thirdly, folks, we obey the laws and we live uprightly in a society. And you know what that does? We have nothing to worry about in one sense. For notice what Paul says. For rulers aren't a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. He's God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Have you ever had that experience of being late? Perhaps you overslept, your alarm didn't go off. And you know that you're going to be late for work. So what do you do? You run out the door, you get in the car, and you put the pedal down. And the whole time you're driving, weaving in and out of traffic like a NASCAR race, racer, you're doing a lot of praying. <laughs> Prayers like, I hope there's no CHP officers out today. Lord, please don't let me get pulled over. Why? You're afraid. You're panicked. The whole time you're looking in your rearview mirror in terror because you know if you get pulled over, you're going to get written up for how fast you were going. All right, true story this morning. It's early. I got to get to church. All my way, I was going a little bit faster than you're supposed to go. I don't remember exact speed, but I know it was over. And I saw on the side of the road. And now they don't ride in cars anymore. It's hard to recognize. It's an SUV. It just throws you off. <laughs> and I saw it, and I was like, whoa, back it down, back it down, back it down. You know, I was, fortunately, I saw it. But, you know, it's a reminder. I was in terror for a second. <laughs> Another example is if you're driving and a light turns yellow. Some of us think that means punch it, <laughs> speed up, light speed. But before you hit that light, it turns red. 
And what do you do? The first thing you do is you look for a policeman. In your rearview mirror, you're, looking, you're just like, you're, your head's on a swivel. Do you see? All right, we're good. And you don't do it again until the next yellow light. You realize that this is, you don't want to be afraid driving in fear. Or, again, I'm sure nobody here does this, but if, if you're coming up to a place and you realize you miss an exit and you want to make a U-turn, but there's a light that says no U-turn, why, why, why? We question it. And we can even justify it. You don't think Jesus would have put a U-turn sign on this? It's right for me to obey God rather than man. And the next U-turn, you feel like it's probably miles up. I'm not doing that. And I don't want to turn down there and go into the neighborhood and whip around and come back out. Why why do I know so much about this? So what you do (laughs) is you make the U-turn anyway. And what do you do? You're immediately, again, swivel. You see anybody? We're good. All right, let's get back on the freeway. On the other hand, folks, and this is what I would encourage all of us to apply. If we're abiding by the rules, nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about. It's not a terror to you. It can even be a comfort to you. You can wave as the officer goes by and pulls over another Christian. Just, hey, yeah. I know that guy. Goes to first service. I've seen him. Front row. I remember one time I had, uh, this was years ago. I mean, a lot of years ago. Like 20 years ago. I, I, I was in my station wagon and I was, I was, uh, I rolled through a uh, stop sign. I mean, slowly. <laughs> but they say California stop. Is that a real thing? I thought it, it's not. It's not real. I mean, it's real, but it's punishable. Uh, and I rolled through, and it was right at this surf spot where I always surf. And it was like, woo, pulled up. And it was like right there where everybody, like around from church is driving by. I was just like, Pastor John, what are you? That's good. Just witnessing, witnessing. To this guy right here. No, I didn't say that. You don't want to be afraid. You have nothing to worry about if you're obeying the rules. So we're to be subject to authority because the authority is from God. Secondly, we're not to resist authority lest we suffer the consequences of our rebellion and resistance. But then Paul takes it a step further. And here's where things get really encouraging. Verse 6. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending this word continually to this very thing. That is one thing that they are attending to continually. Taxes. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now, the Jews had a long history with taxes. Even in the Old Testament, they taxed their own people through different tithes. And in the Old Testament, there were at least six required taxes that were mandatory that amounted to somewhere around 24%. Sometimes Jews were taxed by their own king for the purpose of his paying tribute, a form of extortion demanded by an overlord nation. When Paul wrote this epistle, about paying taxes. The Romans were taxing the people at times severely, and the Jews despised the taxes that were imposed upon them. In fact, they even despised more tax collectors because what would happen is a tax collector would be required to take so much for the year and give it back to Rome. Had a requirement. 
anything he took above and beyond that, he could keep for himself. They had a license to rip their own people off. That is why tax collectors were so hated among the Jewish people because of their occupation, how they took advantage of them. And the only friends that they had were other tax collectors. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus brought into his group of disciples a man who was a tax collector named Matthew? Also, he had a former zealot who was part of his discipleship group. But nonetheless, this question of taxes was a controversial issue. So much so that Jesus was questioned by the religious leaders. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the reason why they asked Jesus that question, they thought they had him on a horns of a dilemma because if Jesus said, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, they'd say, ah, he's pro-Roman government. And they would turn the people against him. If he said, no, you don't need to pay taxes, don't worry about it, then they could turn Rome against him. They thought they had him. And remember what Jesus said? He asked for a coin. He didn't have one himself. And he said, whose inscription is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Jesus said, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render unto God what belongs to God. This has Caesar's face on it? This, is, this bears the image of Caesar? Then give back to Caesar what belongs to him. What image do you have on you? The Bible says you were created in the image of God. Then render yourself back to God. Give to Caesar what's his and give yourself to God. They, they didn't know how to respond to that. They had been silenced. On another occasion, Matthew chapter 17, Peter was questioned whether or not his master paid a particular temple tax. It wasn't required. It wasn't necessarily lawful, but, but it was customary. And when Peter was asked that question, he went back to Jesus. And Jesus said to Peter, hey, Peter, are the sons free or, or should they be charged? And Peter said, Lord, they're, they're free. And Jesus responded. He said, well, let's not offend them. Here's what I want you to do, Peter, concerning this tax. Why don't you go down to the sea, catch a fish, and the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, pull out the coin, and then go pay the tax for you and me. It's in the Bible, by the way. I mean, you ever read that story? Can you imagine Peter like, that took faith to go down there. And this guy spent his life fishing. I don't think he ever found money in a fish before. But when Jesus tells you to go fishing, I mean, he loved to do it. All right, that's no problem. The first, I mean, I just would, I just want to, how did that happen? Anyway, he goes down and he gets it. Sure enough, he, he pulls out the coin, pays the tax. There's some of us here this morning that would like to go fishing <laughs> for the purpose of finding money to pay our taxes. I mean, that would be wonderful. Go down and find a big tuna and open its mouth and uh, there's a bag of money. Pay your, go pay your taxes. But render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Guys, we should pay our taxes. I'm not saying I'm excited about it. I'm not saying I'm, oh, I hope they go up. I, are you kidding me? I mean, this is, I, but it's, it's a fact. I heard, and I don't know that this is true, that the IRS has a conscience fund wherein it receives payments annually from people who feel bad about cheating on their taxes in the past. I don't know if that's just a legend or not. I've never contributed. But I do recall reading an amusing story about such a thing. A man wrote to the IRS, and this is what he said. Dear sirs, enclosed is $175 I owed from my taxes 10 years ago. P.S. 
If my conscience is still bothering me, I will send the rest later. (laughs) Although it's an amusing story, there are some Christians who will cheat on their taxes and they will justify it by saying that the money I send goes to things that it shouldn't go to anyway, so I'm not paying it. I'm keeping it for myself. That's a sin, by the way. I remember when my son got his first car. What a big day that was. When your kid gets a car. And it wasn't an amazing automobile, but it it was a car. And we went down to get the car, and I remember purchasing it from this man. And, you know, you have to fill out the paperwork and, you know, the... What, how many miles are on it, what year it is, all of this is as the title's being transferred, etc. And then you put down how much it costs, which will determine how much you pay when you go to the DMV. And this man suggested, hey, don't, don't put down the price you're paying me. Put down, you know, take $2,000 off the price and you know what'll happen. You tell him, I, I know how it works, bro. No, we're not doing that. I told my son, that, that's lying and we're not gonna do that. We're gonna do what's right. We're gonna do what's lawful. And it was an object lesson for my son. Folks, we're to be honest. We're to be outstanding citizens. We're to render to all their due, verse 7, to whom taxes are due, customs, to who customs are due. How about this? You ever traveled to another country? They give you that piece of paper that tells you, how much money did you actually spend? I never spend any. So I, don't, I just say, no, 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 no. It's great. It's, a, it's, a fr- it's freeing to know that. And if I did spend something, it's usually under 100 bucks, maybe under 50 bucks. What do I need? I don't need anything. And it seems like if I buy something and bring it to somebody, they don't need it either. They say, thank you. What is that? It's something that I just thought you might. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, But if you don't do it honestly, and, and you, you write down the wrong numbers, or you don't write down any numbers, and then they open your bag and say, hey, what's uh, you know, $50,000 worth of merchandise that you didn't claim? Oh, that? That's my wife's. You know, I, you can't do that. You're responsible. You get the point. And then in verse 8, another reason why we're law-abiding citizens, folks, is because we are called to love one another. Look at what it says, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now pause there for a moment. I must point this out. And when it says, owe no one anything, there are those who are rather legalistic as it relates to this particular passage and say, you should never have any debt at all, period. It doesn't mean when it says you don't owe anyone anything that you can't have a mortgage or that you couldn't have a car payment. If you have debt, it should be manageable debt with the idea and the intention of getting out of debt eventually. That's the goal. We are to pay our debts, in other words. Also, I believe there is something to be said for if going into debt, you want to avoid it at all costs, if you can. That you shouldn't Put this weight around your neck. If you, if you can't do it, th- then don't bury yourself. I mean, it, it is something that debt is a huge burden, hashtag Christmas season. So be very careful as you go into this season. Think about it. Really prayerfully consider it. Not to get in over your head. We live in an indebted society. The national debt, the credit market, etc. It's out of control. And people are overwhelmed by it all. And so we want to be careful with that. If we're going to be indebted, 
Let's do so for love's sake. You see, when we're loving others, we're actually fulfilling God's law. It says, notice this, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to any neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. There were two tablets of stone that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The first tablet dealt with our relationship to God. All of the laws that were listed in the first commandments or the first commandments there, the first tablet, our relationship to God. The second tablet dealt with our relationship to our fellow man. And here, Paul is citing the second tablet when he's encouraging us to love one another and saying, by loving one another, you've actually fulfilled the law. You're not going to murder someone if you're walking in love. You're not going to commit adultery or murder or covet or bear false witness if you're walking in love. Therefore, you are fulfilling the law. Loving God with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself is actually fulfilling God's law. If we're walking in love, love delights in the happiness of the one being loved. Walking in love keeps us from hurting those we are to love. And consequently, it leads us to fulfill all that the law requires. Because the law requires nothing which is not beneficial to the best interest of my fellow man. So if I'm loving my neighbor with the sincerity in which we love ourselves and treat the other person the way we want to be treated, we will fulfill what the law instructs. Therefore, the whole law is comprehended, comes together in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. William Barclay gave a definition for this agape love. He called it, I love it, the unconquerable benevolence. Nothing the other person can do will make us seek anything but their highest good, though they might injure us or insult us, that we'll never feel anything but kindness toward them. And that quite clearly means that Christian love, listen carefully, it's not an emotional thing. I don't feel like I love them. <laughs> I know that feeling. But the Lord said, I've commanded you to love as I have loved you. It's more than emotions. It's a matter of the will. It's the ability to retain unconquerable goodwill to the unlovely, to the unlovable, towards those who don't love us in return, even toward those, listen, who don't like us. Walking in love, it's the quality of mind and heart which compels a Christian not to feel bitterness, desire for revenge, but seeks the highest good of every man, no matter what they may be. You remember that Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, who upon passing a Jewish stranger who had been stripped and beaten and left for dead, took pity on him. He stopped, he helped him, took him to the nearest inn, took responsibility to pay for his care, carried his burdens, provided for his needs. And Jesus then said to those who were listening, now you go and do likewise. And one man responded, well, who's my neighbor? You remember this question. Jesus just clearly made it evident who the neighbor was. 
We're to walk in love. Of all of the gifts that you could give to someone else at this time of year, there's no gift that could ever compare to the love of God working in your life and through your life, loving people. And that's something, folks, that doesn't happen just one day a year. This, this is a gift that keeps on giving every day, loving people, walking in love. And again, this is the badge of, of the believer in Jesus Christ, love marked by the love of God. Tertullian said this concerning Christians' love. He described the love of the early church in this way. He said, quote, it is our care for the helpless our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. Love. What kind of a citizen am I to be in the society in which I live? What kind of a person am I to be in light of the political structure in which I live. First and foremost, I'm a Christian. I'm to be like Jesus. And therefore, I'm not to resist that authority. I'm to abide by the laws of the land, the ones that I like and the ones that I don't like, the ones that are necessary and the ones that I don't think are necessary to be an example to others around me. And in addition to that, the way I believe to be an outstanding model citizen is to walk in the love of God, to live out love to the people in this world. And folks, there is no greater demonstration of love than at the cross of Calvary. When Jesus came and died for our sins, not his own sins, our, our sins, took our place, paid the price, was our substitute. Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that for us, not only his friends, but his enemies. And this morning, we have the opportunity to receive communion and remind ourselves once again of the love of God. And so let's prepare our hearts to receive communion. Again, I'm, I, I love this because to me, this time of year, taking communion, this, this is what it's all about. This, that tree, it's not all about that. The presence that might go under the tree it's about his presence on a tree, the tree of Calvary, the greatest gift ever given. His blood ran red, my sins now forgiven as white as snow. I'm not dreaming of a white Christmas. I'm living in it because of what Jesus has done for me. <laughs> Father, we thank you today for the gift of salvation. God so loved the world that he gave. And there was a cost. You poured out your blood 
so that we could be saved. And this morning, we have the opportunity now to remember, to reflect, to remind ourselves of so great a love. Nothing compares to your love for us, Lord. I pray that as we remember you, our hearts would be filled with gratitude and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.